Well, good afternoon, Spark. It is uh, great to be with you, and uh, it is a privilege to be together. Uh, you know, not, a lot of churches aren't, at least up in the Seattle area, are not meeting, and we'll see how that progresses for us as well. Uh, but for today, I love the fact that we're all here, one body, all loving Jesus and worshiping together. For those of you who are on the podcast, wherever you are, whatever date it is, uh, welcome to you. And for everyone that's online, welcome. And if you're a new person to Spark online, welcome. Uh, you know, we hope that you experience God's love as we worship today and as we have our sermon now. So this weekend, we are going to continue in our series, uh, Why Jesus? You know, what is it about Jesus and why do we follow him? And today we're going to cover a very difficult topic, a challenging topic about the goodness of God and what that has to do with the pain and the suffering that we experience and see in our world today. And here's the main point of my message right up front. Why do I follow Jesus? I follow Jesus because when we experience, experience pain and suffering, and we will, we can trust that Jesus will be with us somehow, some way, with a compassionate heart, listening and watching what we are going through. But more, I believe, and Scripture shows, it's in the Bible, Scripture shows in one of the most remarkable moments of the whole gospel story that Jesus may be even crying with you as you go through your pain. That, my friends, is called empathetic suffering. That's what we're going to talk about today. I find it attractive. It inspires me. And that's why I believe and why I stand with Jesus. There's a pastor named Tim Keller who recounts a conversation with two college students who are discussing today's question. And I think their conversation reveals this very well. He writes this. I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists, said Hillary, an undergraduate English major. God allows terrible suffering in the world. So he might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. This isn't a philosophical issue to me, added Rob, Hillary's boyfriend. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering if, even if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists, but if he does, he can't be trusted. Happy Sunday, by the way, right? Now, I don't mean to necessarily take us down on a down note, but this is a hard question and one that can strike us the most deeply, the most personally, and I imagine many of you who walked in this afternoon that you might have questions or fears or doubts or burdens on your heart that are real. And maybe it's the coronavirus. I would think many people are thinking about the coronavirus. Maybe it's the pressure of school. Maybe it's the pressure of a job. Maybe it's mental illness or addiction or chronic illness. And sometimes... When we go to church, it can be almost like we feel this pressure to put these things away or not think about them, but they are real. And it doesn't take much to look around our lives, our world, our cities, and around the globe to see the prevalence of human pain and suffering. Some of you have been to other parts of the world, and you have personally encountered the, the almost unthinkable amounts of poverty or hunger 
or malnutrition or sickness or violence that still exists in our day in spite of all the advancements we've made scientifically and technologically. Did you know that around 22,000 children die every day to poverty alone? 22,000. And of, cor- and of course, as unthinkable as that number is, it's equally unthinkable that just one child dies in a tragedy or that a family goes through loss or just one person suffers. A few years ago, my friends rushed their sweet four-year-old uh, son uh, to the hospital because he got a fever. And that fever got worse, which led to his brain swelling, which led to an induced coma. And for a while there, it was touch and go. And this poor boy spent three months in the intensive care unit surrounded by doctors and nurses and people around his bed praying for him. And thank goodness he survived. But he had severe brain damage as a result of this trauma. And that family was devastated, as you can imagine. They would never be the same family again. They would never see their son play baseball or learn to drive or go to college or get married, or have children. Their son, in their mind, had been taken from them. And in a way, that's an analogy of what suffering and pain does to us. It takes something away. A divorce can steal the dream of a perfect marriage. A terminal diagnosis can steal the dream of hope for a long life. Being hurt or abused can steal a sense of dignity or worth. Injustice or poverty or war, it steals life and hope and joy from millions around the world, leaving in its wake broken hearts and broken dreams and broken lives. And so honestly, we have to ask the question, why? Why does God allow this? Why doesn't God do something to put a, to put a stop to the pain and suffering in our world? And where is God when I'm in pain? That's our question for today. And so to help us walk through this question, we're going to look at a very unique story, a story from one of the Gospels, the Gospel of John. It's a story about three siblings who experienced a great tragedy in their life that led them to the question, God, why didn't you do something about this? So if you have a Bible or you have a Bible app, if you want to turn to John chapter 11, and if you don't have a Bible, we will have the verses on the screen behind us. And the story begins this way. This is John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. Now, let's pause for a moment and just reflect on this statement. We are not told what kind of sickness this is. We don't know if it was caused by a genetic predisposition or because Lazarus lived in a time that was before antibiotics or vaccines or because Lazarus may have made choices that led to his illness. All we know is that he's sick, and we're about to find out that it is really serious. And it's worth pausing and asking the question, why? Kind of even implied in this text, why do people get sick? Why do people experience miscarriages or divorce or tragic accidents? The first words in this story about Lazarus raise one of the most commonly asked questions in the Bible, which is, God, why? In fact, one of the most unique aspects of the Christian faith is that it doesn't sweep these difficult questions under the rug. It doesn't ask us to silence them or avoid them or to put them to the side. The book of Job, the book of Lamentations, the Psalms, the writings of the prophets are not just conceptually about human suffering. 
They are honest words expressed by those who have suffered and who are angry about it. Here's a couple of examples. The prophet Habakkuk saw his suffering as a failure to do what God had promised. Listen to what he prayed. He said, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? The psalmist boldly reminds God just how long he has suffered. He writes, For my youth I have suffered and been close to death for years and years and years. I have lived this way. Job, who lost his family and all that he loved, described the weight and burden of his pain. Listen to his words. If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sands of the sea. No wonder my words have been impetuous. In fact, the Bible is filled with impetuous words, not just about God, but to God. To God. Where are you? Why don't you answer? What are you doing? Why don't you act the way you say you do? Don't you even care? Ever ask a question like that? The Bible does routinely, time and time and time again. Sometimes we think that faith means quieting your frustrations or anger but not according to the Bible. So then how would God answer? Well, to kind of get at this question of how the Bible really speaks about suffering and the goodness of God, if we had to boil it down to one sentence, if we took a big picture from cover to cover, what does the Bible say? If I had to say something, I'd say in one statement, I would simply say, suffering is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not the way things are supposed to be, God would say. According to the Bible, there's actually a way that things are supposed to be, and it does not include suffering or evil or injustice. It's what the ancient Israelites called shalom. Shalom in our context, when we think of that word, and maybe you've heard that word before, I'm certain you have because you are at Spark Church. And we talk a lot about shalom. That word, it means peace or the absence of conflict. But it means far more than that. Listen to one scholar named Cornelius Plantinga Jr. Here's how he defined this word, shalom. He writes this. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state affairs in which human needs are satisfied and human gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. In other words, shalom means children growing up thriving, and marriages stay strong, and government officials lead with integrity, and the Golden State Warriors are winning championships. That's right. All things that are meant to be are meant to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. There, are, there is a way that ought to be. And God designed a world for a way. But in order for this shalom to be real, in order for God's shalom uh, with us to be real, God created, create, uh, gave us the freedom to choose him or not, to choose shalom or not. Because love can't be forced. Love can't be predetermined. You see, God did not create us as robots because that would mean that love isn't possible. Now, this may be kind of a goofy illustration of how this could work. Just go with me. There's an old movie some of you may know called The Stepford Wives. Anyone remember The Stepford Wives? 
It's about real-life wives being replaced by identical-looking robot wives. Now, just think about this for a moment. Imagine your real-life, flawed, sometimes difficult spouse or partner or roommate or friend. Everyone got somebody in mind? Being replaced by an identical-looking robot version of him or herself who always smiles, who always laughs at your jokes, who always does what you want, who always makes it so that you're happy. Could you even want something like that? Okay, your silence is a problem. You're supposed to say no. And because you didn't say no, you're probably going to be in trouble this week. Think about it. For there to be such a thing as love, there has to be the freedom to choose not love, to choose not shalom. And if you know the stories of Scripture, this is actually what happened. In Genesis, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, chose to go their own way. They thought their way could be the way things ought to be. And in doing so, according to church tradition, that original sin, and sin is just a violation of shalom, that original sin created not just a moment of inner guilt or shame, but a catastrophic collapse of the way things are supposed to be. From that first fractured marriage, to violence between sons, to vengeance between entire families, to the corruption of human society. Every sin in our world can be traced back to this first violation of shalom. When people just like us chose to go their own way. Chose to trust themselves instead of God. Which means suffering on the whole is a consequence of sin. It is the result of a world that freely chose a different way. It's the natural byproduct of choosing our way instead of God's way, which is why it still exists today, as we still choose our way time and time and time again. And suffering comes to everybody, including this man named Lazarus, which takes us back to our story of Lazarus in John 11. We've got one verse done. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus that now lay sick, was the same one that poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, what we know from this part of the text is that the man who is sick is not just some stranger on the street to Jesus. This is actually a close friend of Jesus. We know that Jesus would often travel down from Jerusalem to Galilee, and when he did so, he would often stay with this family less than two miles away from Jerusalem. That's why John reminds us it's the same Mary who poured oil on Jesus' feet, as if to say it's the same family that Jesus has spent time with many times before. In fact, Jesus had become such good friends with Lazarus when the sisters sent word to Jesus they don't even need to use his name. They simply say, the one you love. Did you catch that? The one you love. And that phrase in the original language could easily have been translated as not just your friend, but your very close friend. Now, this takes the story to a much more personal place. Because this isn't just some other person. This is arguably one of Jesus' best friends, his buddy. And they don't even have to ask Jesus to do something, do they? In fact, by saying the one you love is sick, they assume, well, gosh, Jesus will do something because that's what friends do, right? Which makes what Jesus does next even more surprising. 
Look at verse 5. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Think about it. Jesus hears about his friend's family emergency. He remembers how much he loves this family. And then he does nothing for about two days. The text doesn't say he's with somebody else. The text doesn't say he's teaching or healing or praying or busy. He just didn't show up. Not on the first day, not on the second day. In fact, Jesus doesn't, does, just doesn't wait two days. He waits until he knows that Lazarus has already died. Look at verse 14 and 15. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. So that you may believe. Okay, this is confusing. Believe what, Jesus? That you don't care, that you're too busy, that you have other things to do? It's confusing. Here's something interesting. In Hebrew, the name Lazarus means God has helped. But in this story, it looks like God hasn't helped, or God didn't help, or maybe God won't help. And I hope you feel some tension in this part of the story. I can see it on your faces. There's something unusual here. But the truth is, this is where so many people live in our day, isn't it? In those terrible two days, that space between, that space when God could have done something. You know, that space when God could have stepped into your marriage or your job before it failed. That space when God could have stepped in before that situation went from bad to worse. Those two days. Jesus, why those two days? That's the question that Mary and Martha are living under. Why those two days? And they're suffering. And here comes Jesus. And you can imagine the conversation that come next are going to tell us a lot about Jesus and suffering and how to make sense of it all. In fact, there are two conversations we're going to look at. And I think Jesus has words and actions that are appropriate and needed for each of these people. The first conversation Jesus has when he arrives is with Martha. Martha, as you may know from other gospel stories, is kind of a type A person. Loud, busy, get it done, get it done fast kind of person. So it is no surprise that she's the first to come out and to see Jesus. Verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, Martha is direct. She's clear. She's honest. She's straightforward. And I imagine she's angry. And I love how honest she is. Friends, sometimes the best faith you can muster is a moment of sheer, raw honesty. God, if you had been here, my kids would not have been in trouble. God, if you'd been here, my career would not have stalled. God, if you'd been here, my father would still be alive. God, if you'd been here, my heart would not be broken. Martha's honest. Her view of God has been shaken, and she's suffering, and she's looking for answers, which is exactly where Jesus meets her. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, Martha answered. I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Now, in that day, most first century Jews would have believed that God's way to vindicate the righteous, to show that their faith and their actions were right, would be that they would be resurrected when God comes in the last day. That was the typical theological belief for first century Jewish people. 
So Martha is saying, I know, Jesus, there's a plan. I know there's an answer that tells me how this is going to work out. But Jesus interrupts her. Jesus interrupts her her and basically says, your theology is right, but you're missing something essential. Jesus says this. Look at these words. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is telling Martha that the resurrection isn't just a doctrine. It isn't just a future fact. Jesus is saying to Martha that he is God, that he is the Messiah, the great I am, the one who was promised by the prophets, that he is the source for resurrection and new life. Now, this is abstract. It is. But what I think Jesus is saying to Martha is, is that he can bring new life out of chaos that he can bring new life out of suffering, that he can bring new life out of the grave. Jesus is saying to Martha, resurrection means that you will see your brother again. A clear, direct answer. Friends, this is the first conversation, but Jesus is not done. He's been talking to Martha, and he begins to notice that Martha's sister, Mary, is missing. Mary had heard that Jesus was coming, but she chose to stay back in the house. She probably felt her disappointment so deeply, she couldn't even bring herself to be with Jesus. Can you relate? So Jesus sends Martha to get Mary. And Mary comes to Jesus, and she falls at his feet, weeping, and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. This looks like the same phrase that Martha used. But here in this verse, that word my, I think Mary probably emphasizes it in a really dramatic way, as if to say, this isn't just any loss, Jesus. This is my loss. This was my brother. This was my family. It's my life that's been devastated with tears welling up in her eyes. And this is the amazing part. These words from Mary touch Jesus at a really deep level. The text says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And that's it. There are no other words exchanged between the two of them. The second conversation we've had was different from the first conversation. If Jesus met Martha with theology and revelation, he met Mary with his heart. And then Jesus goes to the tomb, to the place where his dear friend is dead and buried and gone. And then to everyone's shock and surprise, he falls to the ground And he begins to weep. Jesus begins to weep. And this is significant because Jesus only weeps twice twice in the Gospels. Here in this passage and in Luke 19. And he has divine tears because his heart is open when he meets Mary and goes to the tomb. He is confronted by genuine grief in the face of genuine loss. And Jesus needs to respond. And he responds with compassion. So he weeps. This is one of the most remarkable moments in the whole gospel story. It really is. And this is why I follow Jesus. That our God, through whom the whole world was made, weeps like a baby at the grave of his friend. Just think about that. Isn't that beautiful? This is love. This is empathy. And I can follow a God like that. And he weeps so loudly that everyone watching begins to notice And they're shocked at this man, the worker of miracles, the person who has power over the winds and the waves, is now weeping. 
But here's the amazing part. In his weeping, they began to see the true nature, the true character of God, that he is God and a man of sorrows, a God that is acquainted with our grief and pain, sharing and bearing it with us to the point of tears. Listen to this line. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. You see, even more important than Jesus' sheer power to heal is his willingness to step down and to be with us and to love us in the midst of our suffering. I've heard it put this way. God is not only the God of sufferers, but the God who suffers. Because to love is to suffer. Every parent knows this. Everyone in a relationship knows this. Anybody who has lost a person they loved knows this. To love is to suffer with, to come down and be with and suffer in the midst of whatever someone else is going through. Now, there are two types of suffering. There is suffering from and there's suffering with. We can suffer from something and we can suffer with someone. We can suffer from painful events and experiences and losses, both large and small, like loss of sleep or bad traffic, or divorce, or bankruptcy, or cancer. When you are experiencing something that you very much want not to, you are suffering from. But there is suffering with, and that is something, oddly enough, that people choose. This is voluntary suffering, where we stop what we are doing, we sit beside, we sit beside a hospital bed, we listen to a mom who has lost a child, We bring a meal to a person who has lost a parent. And the point is, these people just sit with people in pain. And they know they can't fix it. They know they can't make the pain go away. All they can do is be with this other person and hurt with this other person. And the beautiful yet strange thing is that their willingness to hurt with these people, to help these people in pain, somehow, some way, it helps them. They feel less alone. Their burden gets lighter, and there's a new bond, a new connection that is deeper than it was before. You see, suffering with can hurt every bit as much as suffering from. But it often involves a breathtaking kind of goodness and nobility, and it brings us to the heart of the story about Jesus. You see, Jesus was the master of suffering with. There's never been anyone else who did it like him. He suffered with lepers and he wept over lost people. He listened to the scandal ridden and he had compassion on the doubters. He suffered rejection and mockery and humiliation on behalf of all sinners. And the place of his ultimate suffering, and we know this, was on the cross. Suffering from sin and guilt and death and suffering with you and me. A researcher and speaker named Brene Brown gave a talk on the power of what she called empathy, about being with people in their suffering. And I want to show you a part of it because it points to something really remarkable about who God is. Let's take a look at this video. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, 
the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I'm down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh uh-huh. No, you want a sandwich? Um, Empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. (laughs) John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Now, I love Brene Brown, and I love this clip, because not only is it a helpful picture of how we can stand with others in their suffering, but I love that imagery, because this image points to what Jesus actually did. You see, in Jesus, we find a God who didn't, who didn't just explain away our suffering. Instead, he came down into our darkness. He took on our perspective. He refrained from making judgment, and he experienced real pain. Just think about his life. He was born in poverty. As a child, his family had to flee to Egypt for safety. He was an everyday worker, a day laborer, he was rejected by the people in the city where he, was ra- where he was raised. And he was betrayed, mocked, and whipped. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't just see us in tears. He shed his own. And when people saw it, they knew they were looking at the true face of God. Not because just of God's great and mighty, mighty glory, which it is, but because of his tears. I really like this story about Lazarus. I do, but the truth is, it's one of those perfect stories. Because as many of you know, Lazarus is eventually resurrected. Jesus performs this great miracle, and Lazarus rises from the dead, which is happy and a perfect ending. And that's great, and that sometimes happens to people that we read about or know. But the truth is, we don't hear a lot about healing miracles. Now, I do believe that God can intervene. And I do believe in miracles, I do. But many of us have had prayers from the deepest parts of our hearts to heal a loved one, and they haven't been answered. 
And that little boy from the story I talked about earlier whose brain swelled, which caused permanent damage. That boy had lots of people praying for his healings, but those prayers weren't answered. And I can't explain why not. I don't have the answer. But what I do know is that Jesus showed up. He showed up with lots of people caring for this boy's family, providing food and support and empathy, and many people cried. Friends, when we suffer, and we will suffer, just give it five minutes, when we suffer, we don't have a God who is simply far off and distant. No, we have a God who came in the flesh and understands what you are going through. Now, I'm not saying that God answers all of your prayers or that you will always feel God's presence. But what I am saying is that God sees your pain. And when you hurt, he hurts. Who has compassion and empathy and who is so moved that he weeps. He literally weeps with you. Friends, this is Jesus, the God who suffers with. And that comforts me and that inspires me. And that's why I follow Jesus. Friends, in the midst of whatever suffering might happen to ail us, may you know and hold and, hold and have the peace that comes from a Jesus who empathizes with you. And whatever pain or ailment or suffering you may be in or be in relationship with, may you feel inspired to hold open your hands and your heart and let Jesus sit with you and be with you and bring you that kind of redemption and love and comfort and peace. In his name, amen.